Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and I want to kick things off by saying thank you so so much to all of the Pop Pantheon fans that came out to my new queer pop party in LA this past weekend. Gorgeous, gorgeous! I got to meet a bunch of you. We took photos together. We danced together. The night was so beyond iconic. One of the best of my career. I had the most fun ever. The energy in the room was absolutely beyond nuts. And I'm so glad that I got to make contact with some of you amazing listeners to the show. Please stay tuned. This party will be happening again soon. If you're in the greater Los Angeles area, I hope to meet some of you guys there next time. I want to read a few of the most recent reviews on Apple Podcasts, of course. This first one is from Colleen McGillicuddy, who says, amazing podcast. I hope there's a Robbie Williams episode one day. That's weirdly a very oft-requested one, so definitely writing that one down. Second is from Shauna L32. I'm only five episodes in, but I absolutely love the deep dives on my favorite artists and some that I don't know very well and I'm rediscovering. I'm so glad, Shauna. I love when people are into the episodes on people that they maybe didn't know as well and that the show gives a nice intro to. And then, of course, my favorite review of the last week from G-Star Superstar entitled Ernest. And the content says, please stop saying it. Well, G-Star Superstar, earnestly speaking, I will not stop saying it. But I do appreciate that you gave me five stars while also saying something pretty rude. So thank you for that. If you do have the time or inspiration, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review or a five-star rating and or on Apple Podcasts in particular, but also Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. I know I sound like a broken record, but it really does help the show get up in the rankings and in front of more people. Also, Please follow us on social media. We are at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. There's a Twitter that I don't update. Unfortunately, you can follow it if you want, but it's kind of useless. But if you really do want to follow on Twitter, I'd recommend following me, DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. And I'm also at the same handle on Instagram. We are going to announce the winner of our most recent contest very soon. Sorry, we're just sorting through some stuff. I just wanted to update you guys. We did a contest recently where fans were social mediaing about Pop Pantheon and were entered in a contest to pick an episode. We are dealing with it. We're just sorting through it. I promise I will announce that on the next episode. Also, hop in the Discord. It continues to grow into this amazing little community of pop fans that are buzzing all day about all kinds of stuff. So get in there. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. We get into a lot of fascinating topics this week that you're going to hear. So I would love to hear your opinions on this artist, on reality singing TV competitions. Anybody that was around during that time, share your experiences. It's been so fun actually listening to everyone's reaction to last week's B-side about Bloghouse and all the memories it brought up for members of a certain generation about our 20s, et cetera, et cetera. So go into the Discord. Links for everything I mentioned above will be in the show notes of this episode. They are in the links in my bio on social media, and I will also post them on stories periodically. So that is how you get access to all of that stuff. And make sure you check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode also included in the show notes and links in my bios. So this is an episode on one of the more beloved pop figures of the last 20 years and someone who's had a pretty dynamic and interesting career, especially for someone that began on such a manufactured platform like American Idol. So this was a fascinating discussion of the original Idol herself, Kelly Clarkson. (laughs) 
let's be honest, when America comes together to vote for things, we're prone to fuck it up. As goes without saying, this country is fiercely divided on almost every single issue, and it's hard for the vast majority of us to agree on pretty much anything. But when American Idol debuted in the summer of 2002, the burgeoning hit presented us with a decision, perhaps the only one in modern history that most of this fickle and fractured body politic could agree on. Kelly Clarkson. Indeed, Kelly's win and subsequent two-decade career as one of the biggest names in pop music and beyond both defied the odds, proving that a reality show competition could produce a legitimate superstar, and also asserted that she was very much a rare exception to the rule. There's been a bajillion seasons of Idol since, not to mention copycats like The Voice and America's Got Talent, and to this day, while the show has minted some other enduring names, it's safe to say that it's never again produced a reality contestant turned generational pop since as big and impactful as Kelly Clarkson. Kelly Clarkson was born in 1982 in Fort Worth, Texas. Her parents, her mother was a first grade teacher and her father was an engineer, divorced when she was six, a traumatic event which would eventually come to inform some of Kelly's scarred but resilient on-record persona and some of her biggest hits. Like so many future American pop superstars, Kelly's singing career began in church and subsequently in her high school choir and musicals, where she honed her elastic, dynamic, and exceedingly powerful soprano singing voice. After declining a scholarship to the prestigious Berklee School of Music, Clarkson began pursuing a career in pop, working odd jobs to finance the recording of a demo. As would prove prescient to future squabbles that would define her recording career, Kelly boldly turned down offers from both Jive and Interscope Records for fear that they might relegate her to bubblegum pop. After a brief stint in LA, where pursuit of her dreams of stardom appeared to be going nowhere, Kelly was forced to move back to Texas where she worked, among other jobs, as a cocktail waitress. There, Kelly's friends convinced her to audition for a new singing competition reality show, American Idol, in 2002. While she easily won passage through the early auditions, she was infamously deemed unmemorable by Judge Simon Cowell until the competition was whittled down to less than 24 contestants and Kelly's down-home, affable, outspoken girl-next-door personality and undeniable vocal talent led her to the front of the pack. Throughout the competition, she proved herself to be a true chameleon, equally adept at Motown, country, and rock as she was at show tunes and big classic ballads. When the winner of the show was announced in September of that year, Kelly won with 58% of the vote, received a request recording contract with Clive Davis's RCA Records, and the single she recorded for the show, a schmaltzy Mariah Light ballad called A Moment Like This, hit number one on the Hot 100 and went on to become the biggest selling single of the year. American Idol and Kelly Clarkson both, now inextricably linked, were cultural sensations, and to capitalize on this, Clive and Kelly immediately began work on her debut album, 2003's Thankful. Like her appearances through the various rounds of the show, this record was a smorgasbord of pop sounds of the day. 
Faith Hill-esque country pop on Just Miss the Train, Mariah-style ballads on Anytime, and light pop rock on Beautiful Disaster. The lead single, Miss Independent, a discarded, slinky, mid-tempo R&B empowerment anthem left over from Christina Aguilera's strip sessions and co-written and smacking of the diva, became a top 10 hit. But subsequent singles, The Trouble With Love Is and Low, were only modest successes, and overall, the record smelled like label product, displaying plenty of Kelly's gobsmacking vocal talent, but little of her personality. If Thankful ultimately came off as an obligation both for Clive and Kelly, it was her second album, 2004's Breakaway, that truly established Kelly as a pop star beyond simply being the winner of last year's TV singing competition. In the nearly two decades since its release, a veritable English garden's worth of tea has been spilled about the creation of this record, one of the biggest releases of the decade. Much as she had prior to Idol, when she turned down numerous major recording contracts which would have shoehorned her into the artist that she was not. Kelly fought tooth and nail with the legendary Davis over the direction of this record, demanding that it go in a grittier, rock-oriented direction, and that she be allowed to write songs for the album that spoke to her personal experiences. Clive, on the other hand, wanted to continue to cash in on Kelly's mainstream popularity from the show and put her in the studio with established hit makers. Whatever the acrimony behind the scenes, however, Breakaway became an absolute juggernaut and one of the signature pop albums of the 2000s, showcasing Kelly as an honest, broken, but ultimately irrepressible phoenix and featuring four top 10 hits, including the lilting soft rock title track and two Clarkson co-writes. The bruised power ballad behind these hazel eyes about a devastating breakup, and Because of You, a piano ballad about the damage of her fractured relationship with her father. The other of these hits, written and produced by super producers Max Martin and Dr. Luke, became not only the album's biggest song, as well as Kelly's signature smash that would set the template for the rest of her career, but also one of the most revered and memorable hits of the century, the pop rock kiss-off anthem for the ages, Since You Been Gone. Breakaway went on to sell over 6 million copies in the U.S. alone, but its success proved to be a double-edged sword for an artist with a non-conformist streak like Kelly Clarkson. On the one hand, it made her one of the mid-2000s biggest stars, and she had done so, however hard won, with many records she'd had at least a big hand in creating. On the other, though, the process had left Kelly and Clive's relationship strained, especially when it came to Kelly's feelings about the men behind the album's signature song. Luke and Martin, who she openly despised and insisted upon never collaborating with again. Unlike with her first two albums, though, the success of Breakaway put more creative cards in Kelly's hand, and when the time came to record her third record, she essentially demanded that Davis allow her to have full artistic control, insisting on a co-write on every song and producers of her choosing. Davis pushed hard to get Kelly back in the studio with Max and Luke, and their tension during the making of what would become 2007's My December, thanks in large part to cryptic statements made by both parties in the press, spilled out into the public prior to the album's release and gave the album the patina of a project riddled with development issues long before anyone had even heard a note. Kelly ultimately won the battle with Davis, and when My December began to roll out in April of that year, neither Max nor Luke nor nearly any of the writers and producers that made Breakaway such a success were featured on the track listing, and every song was written, along with a few select collaborators, by Kelly herself. The result was a very personal, even more rock-forward album, featuring gloomy themes like addiction, abuse, and Kelly's burnout from her relationship 
relentless promo schedule. It was an admirable and bold move from a newly minted pop princess. But as Davis had feared, it failed to produce any true radio hits and ultimately sold a fraction of its predecessors. This was an opportunity which Davis seized upon and used to play a much bigger role in Clarkson's follow-up, her fourth album, 2009's All I Ever Wanted. Unlike December, Wanted played like a true sequel to Breakaway, with Davis putting Clarkson back in the studio with a roster of the day's biggest hitmakers who attempted to update the sound of Breakaway's biggest hits. The result was a much more commercially viable album that put Kelly back on the Hot 100 with power ballads like Already Gone and the Katy Perry penned anthem I Do Not Hook Up. Most tellingly, the record's lead single, My Life Would Suck Without You, essentially Since You've Been Gone, but with fashionable synthesizers swapped in for guitars, was written and produced by Max Martin and Dr. Luke. Even though she contributed to the song's lyrics, Kelly refused a writing credit on My Life as a protest to limit her association with the hitmakers. But in spite of all of this, the record was one of the biggest of Kelly's career, hitting number one on the Hot 100. As Clarkson's career hit its second decade, it appeared that her contentious relationship with Davis and the powers that be hit some sort of detente, or at very least, she decided she didn't want it to define her career any further. Clarkson's final two albums from the deal she'd signed with RCA when she won American Idol, 2011's Stronger and 2015's Piece by Piece, while varying in quality, felt like happy mediums between artist and label, featuring numerous Clarkson co-writes and also plenty of radio-friendly fodder, like the number one hit, Strong what doesn't kill you. This helped Kelly extend her career as a top-tier pop performer and solidify her legacy as one of the definitive pop stars of her generation. Kelly also started a tradition during her live shows in this period, covering a different song by a different artist every single night and showcasing, as she did as a contestant on Idol, her versatility and ability to own pretty much any style or genre. In 2017, Kelly both released her first album in a new deal with Atlantic, a return to R&B and soul called The Meaning of Life, which became her eighth consecutive top three album, as well as having her career come full circle, becoming a judge on the reality singing competition, The Voice. Perhaps more prominently, Clarkson launched a successful daytime talk show, The Kelly Clarkson Show, in 2019, in which she was able to utilize and showcase many of the relatable, good-natured, folksy qualities that had made her such a winning reality star two decades prior. The show also spawned the hit series Kellyoki, in which Kelly covers a different song every day of the week, generating numerous viral hits and recently a successful covers EP of the same name. Kelly Clarkson has sold over 25 million records and 45 million singles worldwide. She's had 11 top 10 singles in the United States, including three number ones, as well as nine top 10 hits in the UK. She's won three MTV VMAs, four American Music Awards, two Academy of Country Music Awards, and three Daytime Emmy Awards. Kelly is also widely considered to have established the singing competition show, with her win and subsequent success providing legitimacy to these series, which have gone on to be an enduring American television genre, and paving the way for future stars like Carrie Underwood, Jennifer Hudson, Fantasia, Adam Lambert, Jordan Sparks, and more. Numerous pop stars who have followed her cite Clarkson as an influence both in terms of her signature pop rock sound and confessional lyrics, but also for her defiance of Davis and her record label and her commitment to blazing her own path and controlling her artistry. Here with me on the podcast to discuss one of the most universally beloved pop figures of the last century is music journalist and host of the podcast Legends Only, Bradley Stern. Okay, so I'm here with music journalist and host of the iconic podcast, Legends Only, 
Brad Stern, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a nice introduction that was. Oh my God. Well, it's completely <laughs> true. I look forward to listening to you guys every single week. Thank it you. is a mix of information and, and good times. <laughs> and gay. Good laughs. LGBT <laughs> and, gay. and information. Yeah. <laughs> and a great soundboard. A great soundboard. Have to give it up to my co-host T. Kyle for that one. Really is the gift that keeps on giving. Truly. The third character is the soundboard. It sure is. Arguably Wendy Williams mostly, but yes. (laughs) Wendy Williams, yes. (laughs) I hope she's okay. We all do. We certainly do. So I'm super excited to have you on today and not make you talk about Britney Spears. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely um, a new, new territory for me to not talk about Britney. So I appreciate it as well. I feel like you guys also in your pre-Legends Only Mm -hmm. podcast, which everybody should go listen to. I mean, I'm sure everybody that listens to this podcast is aware of It's Britney Bitch, which was... (laughs) Truly, I and I mean this, like it was incredible. Like that was a journey. I just loved that podcast and I'm so glad that you guys put that down and have it there for people to go back and listen to both because it's like speaks so beautifully to her and her career and how amazing she is. And, you know, I think you guys have been like holding that mantle during <laughs> lots of times when like many people who are now like Fairweather fans <laughs> weren't, but also because it was such a beautiful testament to your fandom of her and like what she's meant to you both. And I really, I was very touched by it. Oh, so I, I love that one. Thank you. I like to, I like to call it a time capsule because I do feel like it sort of summarizes the whole 20 years of her career and how we grew up with her and also our friendship throughout the process. And it turned out to be a really sweet thing. And I'm happy it happened. I'm glad we did it. Me too. Yeah. And I also like now cannot listen to Brittany Jean without thinking <laughs> about the fact that you insinuated that she doesn't sing those songs. I mean, it's not even an insinuation at this point. It's like... I'm ready for Brittany Jean, Brittany's version. Exactly. Yeah, we'll see about that. But yeah. But we're not here to talk about Britney Spears today, as tempting as you make it. Right. We're here to talk about another idol, actual idol, Kelly Clarkson. And I think Kelly represents something really important because obviously her season of American Idol kicked off an entire wave of reality TV singing competitions. And I think Kelly both proved that you could become a legitimate pop star off of one of these things and also proved she probably would have gotten there anyway and those shows do not necessarily like make you a star you know what I mean for sure I think it was I mean I will probably say this multiple times but it's one of the few if not only times we truly got it right as an American public because we we so often (laughs) drop the ball not just in singing Um, competitions right right yes every sort of yeah (laughs) totally I I think it was such a sort of similar to the Britney podcast really it was also such like a pivotal moment in my own sort of upbringing and coming into my own as I was telling you just before like I have so many friends who I have distinct memories of sharing her rise to fame with and what it meant to us and I feel like her winning was just such an important pop culture moment if you were living through that and if you watched it in real time it was such a huge moment and I agree with you she would have made it anyway but it definitely helped at the time mm-hmm And I will say, having gone back and like watched a few of those American Idol performances and watched her winning performance of a moment like this, Mm. I think 
there was something about her that was present from the beginning that continues to be the thing that we love about her, which is that she is maybe the most genuine, mm -hmm. authentic feeling pop star yeah. of at least like my lifetime. She was so herself and so not in a put on way, just earnestly authentic feeling. And that's not something you can teach somebody. Like mm -hmm. she just has had that. And I think that's really been, I mean, aside from her obviously like preternatural singing talent has been one of the things that I think has allowed her to sustain a career for 20 years. Like you just love this woman, like from the minute you lay eyes on her, she's impossible not to fall in love with. Absolutely. I, I feel that the same person who is talking in those first episodes is the one that's on the Kelly Clarkson show. And it's never changed really. Which is truly a remarkable feat that somebody is not totally hardened and jaded in the industry, considering also, I'm sure we'll talk about all of her many feuds and complications with the label and to still be that same person is pretty extraordinary. And it is why I think that she is so beloved. She's so real. Yeah. And you can frame a lot of these conflicts that have defined a lot of her discography yes. as her fierce commitment to defending herself and to being herself and to not letting the music industry and like very powerful forces that be crush that or try to take that away from her. I feel like that's defined her trajectory as a pop star in many ways. Yeah, it almost sort of like oddly exemplifies the American spirit of like rebelling against the systems in some ways. Not that I'm like, <laughs> don't, don't make me sound like a nationalist or anything, but I'm just like... I, I find that like from the jump, she was butting heads with what the label wanted and what they wanted to turn her into, you know, and from Justin and Kelly and everything. And her relentless rebellion is so much a part of her legacy that it is sort of like, I'm so proud of her being our idol because she makes perfect sense for that. I agree. And I also am really excited to unpack some of these like feuds because yeah. as I was going back to the discography, I was like, mm. Arguably, like her first four records are in some way defined by these like tensions behind the scenes in various ways. Right. So I think it'll be fun to kind of trace how that played out. And, you know, she made some bold and brave choices <laughs> during her career that have sent it in directions that maybe, I don't know, it'll be interesting to talk about them. But it, there, she's nothing if not incredibly admirable in her commitment to staying true to herself. And I was just very struck by that going through this whole journey of revisiting this, this music and her story. Absolutely. I want to take this opportunity to talk a little bit before we get into Kelly's story just about American Idol mm. and... Obviously, as you said, she is the American Idol. There have been other huge success stories from the show. I would argue maybe Carrie Underwood aside, she's probably still the most mm -hmm. consistently successful graduate of the show. Yes, but Agreed? she's sort of uh, fallen off of public favor in recent months and years. There's been some, <laughs> some We don't stuff. speak of her anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit true. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she's had some weird funniness. 
Yes, and Jennifer like won her Oscar, but like you know, oh, and she's still like very famous. There are, but like there are a lot of legends from the show, but yes. yeah, of course, Chris Daughtry. Ryan Starr, Kimberly Caldwell, let me tell you, I will do a five-hour segment on Christina Christian, but... (laughs) Oh, no. Absolutely. Diana DeGarmo. Diana DeGarmo, so close to winning it all. (laughs) So, to the extent that you know about it, what was the sort of, like, conception of American Idol? Like, there obviously have been singing competitions in the past. There's been Star Search. There's been famous Mm. TV singing competitions. It obviously originated as a British show. What was the aim of American Idol? What was the concept for American Idol? And how did it come together? And what was their goal in creating that show? I do think it was essentially the millennial American bandstand, what have you, that sort of star search where it was still a time before streaming where we did have, I always talk about these fractured spheres of fame. And at the time we did all still tune into TRL and their respective channels of what were considered cool. So this was still like everybody could have their eyes on something at the same time, which doesn't exist anymore because of TikTok, YouTube and everything. This was Mm -hmm. intended to be the search for the next cool pop star of the early 2000s. It, of course, was still corny and everything. But at the time, I do think it felt cool. I'm, I remember it was something we all talked about at school the next day. Everyone tuned in. And yes, it was following the idol format from across the pond, which worked. So that's what happens. We take an idea and we steal it. And then <laughs> just like the mass Singer. So <gasps> cool in the sense of like the people Marketable. were cool on it or, co- or cool in the sense that like the engagement or the fact that like we were all involved in mm. choosing this person was that kind of the cool factor? I think it was the cool factor. Like I remember the phone of it all and, and being able to like use your cell phone to text in votes and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so novel. And because obviously it led to the stadium tours or arena tours, I, stadiums adventurous, that's too much, but arena sure. tours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was sort of an instant hit in that sense. But the people themselves were supposed to be, I think, rough around the edges. I think they were supposed to be diamonds in the rough. And it was sort of like they were getting shaped in front of our eyes into being pop stars. For sure. They were going to be put through the idol machine, the Simon Cowell, Simon Fuller, whatever machine, and put out in the conveyor belt. Hi, I'm Ryan Seacrest. And I'm Brian Dunkelman. And this is the Kodak Theater in Hollywood, home of the Academy Awards and possibly the most televised theater in the world. Three months from now, live on this very stage, an as-yet-unknown talent will be launched into superstardom. We don't know who that is yet. Right now, they could be parking cars or even waiting on tables. Who knows? What we do know is by the end of the summer, that person's life will change forever. Because you at home decide who will become the next American Idol. Do you feel like it was preordained or it felt preordained watching it that the person that won was going to actually be successful like do you remember feeling that way while watching it I mean Kelly aside just going Mm -hmm. into it yes I do I feel like it was such a huge cultural moment at the time I mean it might just be because it hit at such a specific time in my adolescence that it felt like everything in the world rode on this winner winning and becoming right but I do remember feeling the momentum of this show leading to something big if it was just even the lead single it felt like everyone was anticipating what was coming right and I think the pedigree of who is involved which is like a prescient note here I think made it feel 
that way because they were promised this record deal with Clive Davis. Clive Davis is the ultimate in music business pedigree. This is somebody who has fostered the career, I think, very prominently in this context of Whitney Houston. So there's this whole vibe that if you make it to the end of this competition, like the music business man is going to make you a superstar. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of context here. So who is Kelly? How does she discover her singing talent? How does she end up auditioning for the show? The whole story is sort of just this uh, girl next door vibe is what we're presented. And we're not even really introduced to her during the auditions. She has a cute moment where she trades seats with Randy. And that is the moment that Simon calls out as like the only thing he remembers of her. Hello, Kelly. Hello. <laughs> How old are you? I'm a big fan of you, by the way. Well, thank yeah, you very I'm 20. Much. I just turned 20 this April. Oh, so, yeah. happy birthday. Cool beans. What are you going to sing today? I'm singing Express Yourself by Great. Madonna. Great. Alrighty. You don't need diamond rings or 18 karat gold. Fancy cars that go very fast. You know they never last. No, no. What you need is a big, strong hand to lift you to your higher ground. Oh! <laughs> Good job. Coins. Randy. I love that song. I worked on that song with Madonna. You did a very good job. Oh, come on. See, they love this, right? I can't help it if I'm so famous, man. I know you are. I love me. That's cool. You should be a star. I you really think I could do I it? think you, you should try out. Look, I'll take your place. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, come sit down. You sit down, you sit down. You're okay. good. Very good. Pull it up. I'm ready. All right. Can I be Randy? Now I need some stage presence too, man. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> I'll be Randy, you can be me. Have can I start English. here? Are you going to do modern dance while you're doing it? Or? <laughs> yes. Modern dance. Hey, she's good. Because remember, I will just get on my soapbox. She performs respect during the, I, I think, like top... 24 or 32, right. backed by a piano, and they're narrowing down to the top 10. And it is a performance that is cemented in my brain. And I had the MP3 on my Zune, and I played it to death. Of the, <laughs> Not the, your Zune, Brad. Oh, my Zune. The way that she sings Respect, <laughs> the hairs on my arm, like, still, just raw talent. And at that moment, mm -hmm. Simon responds to this jaw-dropping performance with, I didn't really remember you. And she walks off, and she goes, okay. <laughs> Okay, here it comes. Oh, no, I, I just actually don't know what to say. That's good. I honestly don't know what to say. You have a good voice, but I couldn't remember you from the previous rounds, other than the fact, did you not swap places with Randy? Yeah, yeah, we oh, did. And that's, that's the only thing I can remember. Okay. <laughs> wow. All right. Okay, thanks. It's shocking. If you watch it back now, it's shocking. Like, she performs world-class vocals, and they're like, eh, I guess. They did not have it out for her, honestly. Like, positively until towards the end oh wow in my opinion they wanted to like make it seem like the competition was a competition even though they were like oh shit she's gonna win for sure i think they wanted to try oh so you think that that was put on you think that I, was put on i maybe or they were just blind to it or 
I don't know, but it was it's bizarre. She steamrolled the competition, but it, I don't know that they necessarily made it feel like that. Yeah. So who is she? Like, where does she come from? She's a Texas girl. I think her friend auditioned. Yes, Before that, right, I remember that. I remember the demos floating around. She had already been cutting demos. Her Queen of the Night demo was fantastic. You know, in today's world, she would have been discovered on TikTok and then she would have gotten a deal. Right. (laughs) So what's her vibe on the show? Like you said that she doesn't totally register at the beginning. You said that she broke through for you when she's saying respect the top 24 or whatever. Like when does she start to take center stage on the show? And like, what is her vibe like? There are several performances during the top 10 that sort of seal the deal without you. Motown night. My personal favorite is stuff like that there. I think I name dropped that performance (laughs) bi-weekly. That performance shook me to my core. Natural Woman, obviously, is huge as well. I just think she was leaps and bounds ahead pretty much from the beginning. And it was so clear. It's never been so clear, I think, through all the seasons of who was going <laughs> right, to win. totally. She does end up winning with 58% vote majority, which in America is, I guess, a landslide. Usually is separated by a few, yeah. a few thousand votes, so... <laughs> What do you think it is about her that was evident from the beginning, whether we're talking about Mm. her voice or we're talking about her persona that was so captivating? Yeah, it was definitely her down-to-earth demeanor. It was her girl-next-door vibe. Honestly, it was similar to like how we felt about Britney, in my opinion. And it was the same Southern girl kind of vibe. It was like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, keeping mm -hmm. it real, goofy, silly, fun with the judges. She was playful. Mm. And then she just gets on stage and she's a beast in the same way of the Britney thing of being like, what was that? Like, she turns on a Celine, Whitney, Mariah-esque vocal and then gets off stage and is back to being goofy. And you're like, uh, oh, yeah, she has that sort of dynamic capability. Yeah, I agree. I think it's that there is something very captivating about a celebrity or a pop star who like seems so normal in real life and then they like get on stage and do something extraordinary and yeah. you're just like, whoa, like how is this the same person? So obviously she's crowned. Mm-hmm. Cried in my kitchen. <laughs> yes, and so did she. I was just watching the performance. I mean, it's oh, yes. so touching. She is so genuinely moved and she can barely get through the performance but in Oof. owning it in the most beautiful if you watch that and you don't feel something like something's really wrong with you yeah no absolutely i cried <laughs> the winner of american idol 2002 is <laughs> kelly clarkson For a moment like this. 
I remember my parents who paid zero attention to the show <laughs> during the entire run of it were like, we got to watch tonight. Like it's the finals of American. Like, right. It was a national news story. The whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So Kelly wins the show. The song they've written for her to sing on the show as the winner is a moment like this. It goes to number one, I guess, solely off the power of how incredibly culturally saturating this first season of American Idol is. It's obviously this huge, schmaltzy, kind of classic diva of the era ballad. So she goes about making this record, her debut record. It comes out, I think, pretty soon after she wins. I mean, maybe like a year or so after. It's called Thankful. So how would you describe the sound of that record? And I mean, we can talk specifically about the singles if you want. But overall, how would you describe the sound of Thankful? Like, what what kind of record does she end up making? Yeah, it is an R&B record. It is soulful. And it's also like an older soul kind of album for somebody who is younger, which is interesting. To be fair, we do get cool moments, the bids for coolness which are yes. Miss Independent. Absolutely stands out, which is the lead single. Which is Legentina's work, a discard yes. from Stripped. I'll tell you this, Brad. <laughs> Christina Aguilera is all over this fucking thing. I mean, oh, when yeah. I was listening to Thankful, I was getting massive, various forms of Christina throughout the entire album. Well, you have to really look at who is out at the moment, and it's really not surprising at all. Like, it, she sounds like the moment. She, and that is the idea, mm -hmm. is like, she should represent American Top 40 pop. Therefore, she should sound like Christina. And Christina, it should be said, was coming off of her biggest mm -hmm. era. Yeah. Another artist who actually took a very risky pivot after a very successful record, as something that presages a little bit what Kelly might do down the road, Stripped was obviously a cultural phenomenon the year before this record came out. Completely. It is a bit of a mixed bag. There are some songs that I absolutely cherish on this album, and I still love it. I think Anytime is an absolute bring the house down ballad. Mariah vibe. Super Mariah. My personal favorites are Just Miss the Train and Beautiful Disaster. Just Miss the Train is kind of like country pop Faith Hill. You said that there was a couple of cool moments because I think what you implied there is this record isn't cool per se. No. I mean, what I will say about it is it's incredibly versatile. And I yes. think that that speaks to her run on American Idol. Like the thing about Kelly Clarkson, and I think this will be interesting in framing some of her future work, she can do everything well. And I think that that is where her authenticity comes into play. Yeah. I mean, I guess her authenticity paired with the voice. She sounds 100% herself doing R&B, rock, big, broad pop ballads. There's so many styles on this record and she's able to do each one of them very, very well, which I thought 
was extremely fun to listen to. She sounds incredibly accomplished in all of these different ways. And I think that being on American Idol helped her with that. But as you were insinuating Mm -hmm. earlier, not a particularly cool record. And I agree with you. One of the standout, because it is one of the cooler sounding songs, is Miss Independent, which is like a very modern sounding Christina, Destiny's Child-esque R&B pop song. How would you describe Miss Independent as a song? It's very of the moment. It does sound like 2002 radio, 2003. It is the first hint of where she's going to go, which is actually the most interesting part of Miss Independent. It's the most prophetic song on the album because Mm. that is going to sound the closest to what Breakaway was. So in some ways, I find it to be a very interesting inclusion on the album because it's like the sole hint of what the Kelly persona was going to be. Which is? Empowered, angry, but empowered. You know, it's like, Mm-hmm. It's got teeth, but it doesn't live in the sadness. There's always the self-empowerment angle of it. And that is exactly who Kelly is. If her music is to be defined by something, it is self-empowerment, but it is authentically so in the way that when we had Mm -hmm. that wave of self-empowerment pop of the 2010s that every girl rode, (laughs) Kelly has always been there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like... She, it's always been her vibe. It's always been her thing. And her career is a testament to it as well as every battle she's fought, she's come on on top of, you know, be it personal, like all the breakups or all of the battles that she's had with the record labels. So I think it's so true to her. Miss Independent is once again, unfortunately appropriate. I love what you're saying here because I obviously, and we're about to get to the next record, which contains the prototypical Kelly song. Oh yes. But I agree with you that... Yes, Kiss Off, you know, the Kiss Off Kelly Clarkson song. I mean, this becomes a trope that she returns to over and over and over again on record and something she delivers, as you point out, extraordinarily convincingly. And I really love what you said. It's authentic and it also never comes off as bitter as so much as Mm -hmm. it becomes as like an avenue for her to overcome and to be the strongest version of herself through some sort of painful Kiss Off. Like by giving the finger, she is like venturing into the sunset to be like, like the most empowered version of herself. Mm-hmm. And that is the template of a Kelly Clarkson song. 100%. And I love that you point out that even though Miss Independent isn't sonically the template of a lot of Kelly Clarkson hits, it's in spirit yes. the template for what many Kelly Clarkson songs are. 100%. So Miss Independent is a top 10 hit, yeah. but not a smash on the level of a moment like this, which was number one hit, obviously, yeah. coming off of the momentum of American Idol. And the other two singles are moderate hits. I mean, yeah, we're not yeah. talking about world conquering smashes. So I think we can characterize Thankful as a modest success overall. I mean, does, in your estimation, Thankful establish Kelly as a pop star outside of being the winner of American Idol? No, this feels like the contractual obligation album, which with few and far between Miss Independent, but this feels like this is the package that came along with the win. I still think they're fantastic songs that I have very ingrained in my soul are this album. But at the same time, if you just look at her overall career, of course, this is the one that feels the most handed to her from the win, the contract. 
fact. Yeah, I have to say, very enjoyable album. I don't think I've I listened to Thankful really like Thankful. since it came out. Yeah, she's great at doing a Clive Davis programmed like you totally. know pop album. Like yeah, it is a deeply enjoyable listen. And it a, is. as you said, a real artifact of 2002 or three, whenever it came out. She sounds fucking incredible the entire yeah. time. As I mentioned earlier, the versatility she can do all these styles. Her singing is just absolutely next level. I mean, she rivals the best of the best of her generation just in pure vocal talent. It is just on full display here. I, maybe it's because of the show and, and maybe the show was effective at this. It didn't feel like you were hearing somebody that was just sort of like figuring out how to do this. Like she comes across as a total and utter pro. Oh, completely. It, I always point to this album as, you know, I, when I want her to do R&B again, I'm like, this album was still incredible. Even though it was sort of the obligated album, it felt like it's still yeah. a fantastic album. So before we get into talking about Breakaway, I think an important ground layer that we should just lay out for people is this burgeoning pop punk mm. girly anti Britney thing that's going on in the early 2000s. So can you just talk a little bit about what the contours of that movement are, who the major players are, and what that's kind of all about? Yeah, well, it always goes back to Britney, but <laughs> they needed the antithesis of Britney is Avril. There was a growing movement against bubblegum pop, Britney, and sync, Backstreet. And so what you have up against it is like Simple Plan, Avril, Fifi, Good Charlotte, Blink-182, that sort of like anti-vibe. A lot of the pop girls pivoting at that time. Hillary Duff was a rock girl at that time. She went from Disney Sparkles to hard rock vibes, which was pretty crazy. She's a rock girl. She likes to rock out. That's classic rock, Brad. Yes, it is. Hillary Duff? <laughs> now it is, for sure. When I think about the golden age of rock and roll music, that's where my mind goes. Uh, same. Absolutely the same. Mm-hmm. So I would say she was entering <laughs> into the world maybe a step late, because I do think it was already happening. But then she defined herself as like a featured player of this movement. I mean, they were anti-Britney, but at the same time, they were still making pure pop music. I mean, that's the, you know, they were sort of framed as sort of like, yeah, yeah. we rage against the machine. Yeah. We're so different than still, pop. You know, oh, yeah. Like at the end of that's the day. That's the whole irony of it. We're still talking about people making pop songs with guitars. The right? same people were making both of their records. Like, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. still marketable <laughs> rebellion. It's not actual yeah. rebellion. And so I think her entering into that to be competing with those girls, not even with the pop girls, to be with the edgy Has girls. She spoke Spoken about who her primary musical influences are? Like, do we know who she was standing or looking up to prior to this or during the creation of this? She was working with members of Evanescence on the album. And Evanescence also was very much the cultural zeitgeist at that moment. I think Evanescence is a good point. I mean, Evanescence also was like a tick more actually rock and roll, hard rock, whatever, than like Avril or Fifi. I also felt like she got a lot of like Pat Benatar comparisons at that time. And it was starting to get Joan Jett, Pat Benatar. It was starting to talk about women in rock at that point.
So Kelly comes off thankful. She's recording her second album, which will eventually become 2004's Breakaway. Now, the lead single both of the album and is the song from the Princess Diaries 2 soundtrack, which, of course, in the context of our current conversation, is written by Avril Lavigne, and it's the title track, Breakaway. <laughs> How does Breakaway help establish or set the table for this kind of like Kelly 2.0? Well, Avril 2.0 wrote it, um, whichever version of her. <laughs> 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 Melissa wrote the track. Uh <laughs> Melissa's been doing so well <laughs> she for has the last been. eight years. She really, she really she's carried has. the mantle forth. She absolutely has. <laughs> Melissa's latest album is <laughs> genuinely great. It honestly is. But yeah, I feel like Breakaway actually, as she explained on the Kelly Clarkson show within the past few weeks, was about growing up in a small town and uh, breaking away into... <laughs> the big city but it makes total sense for both artists and if avril had kept it it would have made complete sense for her as well they both were taking big leaps into the music industry and breakaway was a very symbolic transition song from pop r&b to this sound Yeah, I mean, and the interesting thing about Breakaway is I think it's honestly a bit of a red herring in terms of the rest of the Breakaway singles because it's still kind of like a very broad, soft... It's not necessarily super rock forward, I guess, is my point. Like, it's got guitars on it, but it feels like a very straight-ahead pop ballad in many ways. For sure, it's very light. It's very unassuming versus once you tear into Since You've Been Gone, one track later, you're like, oh, right. okay. And it is pretty much a full yes. force event from there forward. Again, perfect transition. You sort of are like unknowingly led to this hellish guitars and drums landscape afterward. Yeah. So Breakaway becomes probably like her biggest hit mm-hmm. to that point. You know, I think also another thing is just to throw in the mix about Breakaway is Kelly Clarkson telling a story, whether she wrote it or not, about her journey to stardom is something that I think people probably are more than happy to hear from her. I mean, this is yes. the Kelly Clarkson that won American Idol. It really speaks to a story that we all watched unfold in front of our eyes. I think that's one of the reasons this song connects. It may be better suited for Kelly than Avril in a way, because we all really watched Kelly go from this waitress to the super star and breakaway is like a narrative story about that with a extremely catchy hook 100 percent, yeah so we're going to talk about it not only i think the pivotal moment of kelly's entire career but probably the greatest single pop song or, or one of them of <laughs> mm. the of the century mm-hmm. yeah a song that i think has been a specter over kelly's career defined kelly's career and is also a fascinating like nexus point for so many different narratives in pop over the 21st century mm-hmm. since you've been gone so let's talk about this from a couple of different angles what do you understand about the creation of since you've been gone and all of the different tensions in creating this emblematic pop record. 
From the limited amount that she has shared with us, she has always said, I work well with 99% of my collaborators, but there are just some people who I have butt heads with and they are not nice people. And she has... (laughs) hinted as much as like uh, saying that producers would want her to sing a certain way, which I think is a very common Luke-ism. Dr. Luke um, is to like get that enunciation in a way that he wants it. Like I think she probably was singing it in a not pop radio friendly way. And he was probably Mm. very militant in the way that he wanted it to stick and be sticky in the chorus. And so like she would have to say unnaturally like curling the vowels or whatever. That's the impression I get is that she was told to sing like a pop star. And obviously we've heard plenty of stories of varying degrees of his authoritarian sort of style of production. And I don't know the specifics, but I think we all defer to Kelly to be a a good sense of character. And so if this person has a problem with this producer, I feel like we all are sort of like, Mm. oh, okay, it was a problem then. Like he was a problem for sure. My understanding is that she didn't want to sing the song period. I think even Mm. just when it was played to her as a demo, first of all, what I've heard and read about like in John Seabrook's book, The Song Machine and in various like narratives about the creation of the song, of which there are numerous because the song is so iconic and the story behind it is so iconic. So basically like Max Martin and Dr. Luke were the producers and songwriters of this song. We did an episode on Max Martin. We do talk about Since You've Been Gone on that episode. But it was the pivotal moment in Max and Luke's collaboration with one another because Max had been coming off of being pegged to the Britney Backstreet and Sync movement and he really wanted to discover like a different way to present himself and an edgier sound for himself. And that was where Luke came in. He sort of like... Obi-Wan Luke, literally, like, sorry, I didn't even realize what I was doing there. (laughs) Luke was seen as sort of like someone that could bring edgier styles. He was a guitarist in the Saturday Night Live band. He had a background in hip hop. And Max was viewing Luke as a way to bring some sort of edge to how he had been perceived as a producer and songwriter Mm -hmm. to that point. Now, Since You've Been Gone was their aha moment because as the story goes, they were listening to Maps by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, which is like a famous indie hit of this era. And felt like it was just an incredible buildup to something that had no chorus. And they decided, listen, if we could put a massive pop chorus on this song, this could really be something. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the origin of them writing Since You've Been Gone. And I know that they initially thought, because Max was trying to pivot out of these sort of like quote unquote teeny bopper artists, he wanted to find like a slightly edgier singer to sing it. So he wanted to go to Pink. I think Pink was who they had in mind originally to sing the song. Although this doesn't represent Edge, they also did send the song to Hilary Duff. She also declined yes. it, claiming that she couldn't, she could not sing it. She couldn't hit the notes. Yes, um. <laughs> very rude, very disrespectful. But yes, very disrespectful. But also like, thank God. Right. And when Clive 
presented the song to Kelly. She didn't want to sing it. And Max did not want her to sing it because he didn't want to be associated with the American Idol girl. And that was not the goal with what he was trying to do with this new sound. So interesting. I always find that like a song that was like obviously such like otherworldly chemistry came together to create this masterpiece. Like nobody involved was really Nobody was happy about it. it yeah. Besides Clive <laughs> Davis. Who, like, let's give him credit. I mean, he's about to become the villain in this story on such a major level. But oh, yeah. there were some things that he really did seem to understand about what Kelly needed in this era. Yeah, and so my understanding of it is everything that you said, which is that she went to Sweden, she cut the song, she had a horrible experience working with Dr. Luke, yeah. who is widely noted to be horrible. Obviously, we know everything about Kesha, but I think even outside of that, mm -hmm. many artists, Pink included, have spoken out about just what a nightmare human being he is. And and Kelly, I think, has spoken at length at this point about how negative her experience was working with them. But the song was programmed and recorded more as a pop song. And her major contribution to it was to amp up the rock elements. So right. a lot of the sort of big guitar and the live instrumentation that you hear on the song was Kelly's idea. And obviously, she smashed it. You know, you can hear the demo. Have you heard the demo that's on YouTube of her singing the song? Yes, but it's been years. Here's the thing. We started our friends. It was cool, but it was all pretend. Yeah, yeah. Since you've been gone. That's the story as I understand it of the creation of Since You've Been Gone. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the second single of this record. As I said, this is the prototypical Kelly song. How would you describe this song and what does it help us understand about like what a Kelly Clarkson song is? Uh, it's fine, I guess. Um, <laughs> 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 Could have been a B-slide. Um, it's hard to explain in the same way of like, so we have this running joke about toxic in the Britney world where it's like, yeah. it casts such a long shadow that it's hard to even get outside of it. It really does define that Max Martin, Dr. Luke magic, especially because it was yes. among the first that they had done. And mm -hmm. it's such an instant banger. I feel it's truly defining in the sense of like there are certain songs from the 2000s that I think will stand the test of time as like defining the era. The chorus is just perfection in a way that it transcended. It's not just gays who like it. It's not just, it's that thing of like, it would go off in karaoke every time. Everybody would join in. Oh, for sure. And yet it's impossible to sing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> It's a feat to listen to her sing it. I mean, that's part of it. It is. It's the ultimate throwing shit in a bag, setting it on fire. Like, <laughs> it really represented just like, fuck you, that kind of like release catharsis song. It really is that song. And when you do listen to it, you're like, yeah, it really I is. Know. It's that song. I think a lot of it also like just structurally is that build. Like, first of all, it's structured as a story, which is really iconic. Like I love the opening line. Here's the thing we started out. Yep. Friends is such an amazing way to open a song. You're like immediately hooked into a like narrative Brilliant. story. Yes. Here's the thing. You know, and then there's this 
kind of simmering tension in the verses that then explodes into this uber maximalist melodic chorus that, as I mentioned earlier, is not easy to sing. I mean, the queen of vocals herself, Hilary Duff, decided that she could not pull it off. I know. Very few. (laughs) Very few. Very few. And I think as you were getting at earlier, it stands in this lineage and also, I guess, calcifies this Kelly Clarkson song as this kiss-off. I mean, this song is, as you said, the ultimate throw your shit in the back and yep. light it on fire song. It feels like catharsis. If you were wronged, mm-hmm. this song like takes you to the other side of that. How do you find the celebration in something horrible that happened to you? This song does that in like the simplest, most pop forward melodic way. That's what like a transcendent pop song does for you. It like takes like a complicated emotional experience and like boils it down into its most simple, most easy to consume form so that you can actually process something difficult in like this kind of easy to swallow pill. Of course, as we said, Kelly doesn't even want to release this song. This is all (laughs) kind of forced upon her, which then goes on to define the next 10 years of her career. (laughs) But the song is an utter sensation. I would say maybe you agree with me. This is the moment more than Breakaway, more than Thankful, more than any of this. This is the moment where Kelly Clarkson becomes a pop star that isn't just the girl that won American Idol. Yes, absolutely. As it turns out, the girl who won has some things to say. And I feel like that is where this album leads us to is like she's clearly a mainstream hit but now she also has a voice on this album as far as her perspective yeah, she's more than just a vessel for yep. like clive davis approved yep. hits you know and the other thing is that she sings it with such gusto and as you said she's very naturally in the pocket on songs about the darker edge of relationships and even when she goes on as we're going to talk about on her next record to self pen songs the spirit of the person that's singing since you've been gone is clearly a natural kind of guise for her. Mm -hmm. Like, even when she is more in control of the creative process of a song, she doesn't come up with songs that are so wildly out of the vein of this song. Correct. It's very much her vibe. Actually, that leads me to my next question, which is the third single behind these hazel eyes is a more holistic collaboration between her, Max, and Luke. Can you speak a little bit about that song and what that helps us understand about Kelly, both as a performer, as the third single of Breakaway, and also as a songwriter? Because this is really one of the first major songwriting credits that she has on a single. Yeah, I feel like this is a pivotal turn for her as in terms of weighing in with her lyrical ideas. I feel like this is maybe what Since You've Been Gone would have been with more of her input and that's sort of like what it has Mm. sort of been described as by her and it is one of her favorites it's just a little bit more personal same vibe but from her perspective right she got to put her spin on the same energy same collaborators which is why it is in some ways superior as far as important to her legacy because it Mm. solidified that she can contribute and it's not just a vessel as we talked about so right behind these hazel eyes really helped to define her as a voice beyond a voice.
it helps sort of solidify, I think, the aesthetic of Breakaway because it's a song that's like sonically in the same universe, I feel like, which helped sort of drive home this point that she could come up with a vision as an artist. I mean, again, we can dispute who was creating this vision and she has obviously spoken at length about the control that others were exerting over mm-hmm. her during the process of making this record. Mm. But there was something about these aesthetic unification and this one-two punch of these two songs of Since You've Been Gone and Behind These Azel Eyes that boosted her cred. As you were saying, yes, of course, it's that she wrote the song. Of course, it's that she delivers them with such verve and with such incredible vocal talent. But it's also like Kelly landed on a very defined aesthetic. If Thankful is diffuse and explores so many different styles and sort of perhaps is musically identityless, Since You've Been Gone, Behind These Hazel Eyes, and then the next single, Because of You, were really a one, two, three punch that really had a point of view that I feel like really played into her advantage in terms of establishing her as a legitimized pop act. Yeah, I feel like getting into Because of You as well, this begins sort of like a trilogy, I think, in her career, as Mm. far as speaking about her father and speaking about her upbringing. Mm. She has this grand arc throughout her career that's really beautiful of talking about that. So this sort of begins our introduction into learning more about Kelly and that her life wasn't perfect, Mm. because you would never get that perspective on Thankful. So... Didn't she write Because of You when she was a teenager? Yeah. So this was like in the back burner already. And they didn't take her seriously to start bringing out her own songs until this album. Or even on this album, I read that with Because of You, she basically had to like fight tooth and nail for them to include this song. And Clive Davis was unduly cruel to her about Mm -hmm. this song saying that this is not a hit. I think he said something like, you should be grateful for Mm -hmm. like what I'm doing for you with these Max Martin and Dr. Luke songs. And like, you should just be happy with that and she fought tooth and nail and I think I can't remember I think it's Reba McIntyre who said it was either Reba McIntyre or Dolly Parton who mentioned in retrospect just how hard she had to fight to get this song on the record and then as you said Because of You is about the divorce of her parents. How would you describe Because of You just sonically and thematically? Yeah, really her father. And it's something that she talked about when she was 16 Mm -hmm. and coping with that. The song ended up being something that everyone could relate to, which is also a very Kelly type of thing is like maybe everyone isn't going through divorce or like hates their father for what he's done. But it resonates, which... Speaks to like her ability as a songwriter, but yeah, it's about her fractured relationship with her father. Right, and how about how the ways that he treated her and her mother created a sense of mistrust that she's carried into her adult life. I feel like unjust is the right word to talk about Live's perception of this song. Mm. Unclear why it was so loathed, but I think it's important. I know, because it's kind of become her other signature song. This song lives on. Like, people love this song. You know, For sure. It's one of her real sturdy classics, I feel. Totally. Totally. Yeah. That's for count them top 10 records (laughs) from breakaway not for nothing probably the biggest record of the first half of that decade or one of the biggest pop records of the first half of that decade and as you said a little bit late to the pop rock game but i think maybe the definitional album of that movement perhaps Mm. 
Yeah. I can see you chewing that in that one. No, I don't think it's wrong. Uh, I think I'm just thinking of yeah. like what came out at that time, but I think everyone was in it to surpass Kelly at that time. I think this yeah. string of singles was, was kind of be. it. Yeah, it was. This album is to me like sort of how people perceive also like Teenage Dream. It's right. just like banger, banger, banger. And I think they got them in the right order too. Like this is one of the rare times where I'm like, no, no, this was a proper campaign. Like, yep, you did An absolute mess yeah. behind the scenes that was rolled sure. out. Sure, everyone a- hated everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like it really defines Kelly's sort of scorned lover, as we were talking about, like on Since You've Been Gone, it carries through the whole album. Even a song like Walk Away, which is like a lighthearted, frothy, poppy rock song, she is always going like, someone hurt me, but I am moving on. Like, yes. That is a big Kelly Clarkson trope. That is the actual Kelly Clarkson stamp is like stronger than yesterday. Stronger, like what doesn't kill me. (laughs) Stronger with every tear. Stronger with every tear. (laughs) So looking back, why was the pop rock mold such a hand in glove fit for Kelly? Because you wouldn't totally have expected that. As we said, she kind of got through American Idol doing a lot of different stuff, but feeling very R&B leaning. Like she was great at Motown. She seemed like she was in the lineage of a Mariah Carey. You know, and then on Thankful, she was doing a lot of Christina. She was maybe dabbling mm-hmm. even in country sounds. Why do you think pop rock mode was such a hand in glove fit for Kelly on this record? Well, besides the fact that her voice suits that in a way that a lot of the girls just couldn't do, she would reference albums now that I think about it. Like she was a big Jagged Little Pill fan. She liked Early No Doubt. Mm -hmm. So I do think she is channeling some of that energy into this of what she grew up on. So I do think it was a more natural fit. But I also think she's extremely versatile in the music she likes. She does like Reba and Dolly. She does like Alanis and Gwen. So this is just one lane that worked. If she went deeper into R&B soul, I don't know that it would be any less successful. Mm. I just think it worked for her because she can do it. And she demonstrates that. Like her big thing also, aside from self-empowerment, is versatility. And it's perfect that she won American Idol. She is the exemplary winner of American Idol because she is able to do every genre. Totally. But there's something about the force of Kelly's voice in these sort of power pop rock songs that is... Just as I said, I keep coming back to this word, cathartic, listening to her like rip through these pop rock songs. And there's this grit that she can bring to her voice that just fits really, really beautifully. And like, it's something that frankly, like a pink aside, not all the other girls can bring that level of vocal power. I mean, Avril doesn't sing like Kelly does. Ashley Simpson doesn't sing like Kelly does. Hilary Duff doesn't sing like Kelly does. Fifi Duff. I mean, this woman... I mean, I know what, I'm being Now bold. we're getting crazy, I, I, yes. Brad, Brad, I'm being bold. I don't yes. like to say safe things on this podcast. That's... I like to say things that other people maybe haven't thought of. Big swings, <laughs> yes. Um, no, but true, it's right? true. I mean, it's like imagine if fucking Whitney Houston or Mariah Carey like sung a Pat Benatar song. You know well, what I mean? Well, we do it's have like... that unreleased Mariah rock album, which we, des- which we do have. We, we do which... have now. It just surfaced post. I know. Thank God. Um, yeah. No, but it's true. I mean, her voice just lends itself to growl and grit and Mm -hmm. guitars and drums um, really, really well. So, Breakaway, 
One of the most iconic albums of the period, as we were talking about, Kelly has this massive run of success. She also infamously gets very burnt out. Her voice starts to kind of leave her. She's on tour for nearly two years straight. She's really, as we've learned in retrospect, struggling through a lot of the promo process of having a record this large. So on the tour for Breakaway, she actually begins to write and record her third album by herself unbeknownst to Clive and the powers that be. What is your understanding of what Clive's goals for the third record are and what Kelly's goals are for the third record and where things start to fall apart here between the two of them? I just generally get the impression that, especially spurred on by the fact that she got that approval and that validation through writing some of her songs on Breakaway that were most personal, that she wanted to then lean in further. And the impression you get is that Clive Davis is like, no, we're going to keep this creamy smooth pop star sheen on you. And she's like, I don't care. I just want to sing and write songs. It's really a classic battle of the label wanting to put you through a machine and her just wanting to be an artist. And they butt heads. And Kelly does not back down. And she felt that she had proven herself to the point where she could do her own thing at this point. So to be told to go right back into the machine was, you know, something that she really butted heads with. And she was at a point in her power. I mean, she was in an imperial phase of her pop career where she did have the power to tell him that. Like, she couldn't have done this Mm -hmm. prior to the success of Breakaway. The power dynamic in the relationship, I guess, had certainly shifted for that moment where she really could kind of tell him Mm -hmm. what she wanted to do and there was not much he could do about it. Absolutely. And I feel like it was such a public thing as well. I feel like everyone was weighing in as the album was coming. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what was going on with that exactly? Like, how that unfolded? Like, wasn't the whole conflict with Clive prior to to us ever hearing a song very obvious and visible to us as fans? Yes, absolutely. It was. And it was publicized that he wanted her to match the success of Breakaway. And it was an impossible standard and it was untenable. There was management shakeups. It was just like a whole battle that was publicized. Because this is 2007 now. So this is like paparazzi culture and everything like that. Back in May before the album came out, there's a TMZ that she reportedly told him to shove it. (laughs) There's a deep tension. (laughs) Um, You know, the album wasn't dropping till July, but there are unconfirmed reports that he wanted to shelve the whole album. So Mm. we heard about it. We're in 2007. This is Perez. This is X17 and TMZ. So we're getting the gossip much more closely aligned to like social media today. Right. Right. So this album had a pallor hanging over. I guess that's what I'm trying to establish. It was like, it was almost impossible, I just remember, to consume this music on its own because it came packed very tightly with this narrative that had formed and calcified in mm-hmm. the months prior to my December's release. We were all very aware that Clive Davis had not wanted to release this music and that <laughs> Kelly had had to basically force him to release it. Right. Exactly. So when Never Again drops, when My December drops, how do you describe the sound of My December? Like, Is it as far off as it was made to seem in that narrative from what Kelly had done before? And just overall, what is the sound of this record and what are the themes of her writing on it? I think it is undeniably harder in the rock edge of it. And I do think that the choruses don't stick as much. They're maybe purposely a little bit muted. I think the songs don't intend to light up top 40 radio. They're much Mm -hmm. more message driven. They're much angrier. They are much more even closely aligned to the jagged little pill vibe, um, which- I was gonna say, Atlantis hangs heavy over this thing. Absolutely. It's not fair. 
And I think that's what she wanted. I think she wanted to scream about touring and life as a superstar. And that's what this album really was. And it has some really angry fueled moments, but it also has her lowest moments ever on record. Irvine at the end with Chivas as the hidden track is the one that she wrote. I remember she said like laying on the bathroom stall like during tour stop where she canceled a meet and greet, which she never ever does because Mm -hmm. she was just feeling so low. And it's like her message Mm -hmm. to God to help her. You can hear it, like it's so raw compared to like a poppy sheen since you've been gone. It is like sure. truly very, very authentically raw. And then the one that I cannot get through without crying is Sober. Best song on the album to me. Yes, personally. it is the most haunting, devastating, but triumphing self-empowerment anthem she has. It's not so much like I'm thriving, it's like I'm surviving. Three months and I'm still sober is very like, yeah. A realistic self-empowerment anthem that really just sells it for mm. me. Great cathartic finale, too. Like, it really builds to a oh, climax. that's what always gets me. That's when I, like, tear up. Her vocals there as she crashes so through. Good. So, so good. Also one of the more memorable hooks on the record. I mean, this, as yeah. you mentioned, this record is short on memorable hooks. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking going back through this, I admire so much what she did here, mm-hmm. like in the narrative sense, even though I don't personally like love mm-hmm. a lot of this music yeah. myself. No, I get that. Go it on. is a bit of a venting session more than uh, a pleasant session. And it's long also. It is long. But you know, you think about a song like Never Again, which was the lead single, and it's not so different sounding to me than Behind These Hazel Eyes. Or, no. You know it's what I mean? very much since you've been gone, Behind These Hazel Eyes. That's the part of me that wonders where, like, did the narrative wave of this thing sort of overtake this project more than it needed to? Like, there was so much about, like, that these songs were so anti-Max Martin, anti-Clav Davis, that she was taking such a new direction and she was fighting so hard for it, which, like is evident to some degree on these songs. Like, they definitely do not have the perfect pop sheen of Max Martin and Dr. Luke. That's, it's obvious. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't feel like she stepped out and made, like, a Bjork album. Like, she (laughs) made a, like, pop rock album. It actually reminds me of the most, this might throw you a bit, (laughs) it's almost identical to the move that Lindsay Lohan made from Speak to a little more personal (laughs) raw. <laughs> Brad, I shouldn't have expected anything less. <laughs> because a little more personal raw is a little more personal and raw and also it's like <laughs> less commercially viable and a bit more complainy, venty. Personal? 
personal. Um, and I feel Wrong. like this is sort of the, the darker edge of Breakaway as well, because I believe Never Again was written in the same sessions as those songs. Um, oh. It was the darker side of those songs of Since You've Been Gone and Behind These right. Eyes. And so it's right. really kind of a cop out to say, like, at least that song is like, no, 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 that's still Breakaway. It's edgier. For sure. It's edgier. And it's hook Yeah, It's not sticky. As you said, I think therapy session is a great way to put it. It feels like a vent, but these songs as individual pieces, sober aside, a few other of these aside, yeah. don't grab me personally as like songs. It's more like you sit through it and you're like, wow, like she really got through something by making this record. And I admire that a lot. And for yeah. a pop star coming off of a record like Breakaway to fight to put something like this out, like nothing but respect for that. You know what I mean? But Completely. It's more of an artistic statement than it is necessarily a cohesive body of like pop radio work. For sure. And I think we should also put out there that it's a breakup record. She was dating Moody, what's his face, from Evanescence. So I think it was the yeah, the combination the, of the breakup and the burnout from Breakaway are what sort of created this right. mood that she was in. That sort of also gives her maybe the unfair narrative. I mean, we talk about this with Taylor Swift of like, oh no, she's going to write a song about us if we break up. Like she does sort of start to become a breakup anthem queen as well. And yes, that has right. sort, it's sort of like misogynistic undertones to it. But it's like there's an element of Kelly's career that is very breakup heavy. For sure. She's like constantly in the midst of a breakup. In fact, I think some of her later period work has suffered from not having that inspiration. <laughs> yeah, I like didn't want to say it because I feel like it is a, such a dangerous <laughs> and like irresponsible thing to put out there because I don't think it's always necessarily true that you need to have heartbreak to have artistic. No, like, no, no, no. Creativity is true, but it might be true for Kelly. Clarkson. <laughs> she certainly thrives when she's pissed. That's like... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And talking about being pissed, I think in some ways you can just also view this album as just a giant middle finger to Clive Davis. I oh, mean, yeah. It's interesting to think, you know, she was mad, you know, given how successful it was, but that's who Kelly is. She has a lot of integrity. We talked about this at the beginning. Like, I don't think Kelly ever cared about being the biggest pop star on earth. I think that was a byproduct more so than it was like her actual ambition. I agree with you that I think Kelly wanted to be a success. She wanted to be a singer she wanted to be a professional musician mm -hmm. but i don't think kelly ever saw how big breakaway was gonna make her i don't think that was what kelly's goal was here in my opinion and i think this album bears that out if she wanted it to be she would have continued the process it's as simple as that exactly. she had all the tools exactly. at her disposal if she wanted to be exactly that she would have just kept it moving she very clearly saw what it's like at the top and said oh no not this I'm very happy being exactly. successful, but I don't need this level. Yeah. And that's why I sort of say, in a way, this album is more of a triumph of narrative than a triumph of music in some ways to me. It was a pivotal decision that she made. It yes. was an important yeah. inflection point in her career, and it was an important thing to fight for. And the mm -hmm. narrative of it being public, I think, ultimately served her, even though it was messy seeming when the album came out and might have hurt the album's commercial fortunes more so than it was necessary. But I think this was a moment where people have rallied around Kelly and that what this did for her persona and what this meant to the fans was instrumental in, I think, Kelly's longevity and the connection that people feel to her. This is a woman that has integrity and just going to fight for what she wants and isn't a fucking sellout, you know, and that's the powerful narrative that was established in the making and release of this album. Once again, though, there's an interesting sort of thing that goes on between this record and 2009's All I Ever Wanted, mm. which is that 
Kelly gets kind of brought back into the fold. And I'm interested in what your thoughts are on this. So she goes from making this extremely risky and extremely painful birthed album, My <laughs> December, birthed artistically and birthed commercially. Yes. It performs at a fraction of the level of Breakaway. I think Breakaway sold something like 8 million copies in the United States alone or something crazy like that. And this album sells maybe one-tenth of that. Never again goes top 10, I think, on pure momentum, but none of the other singles connect. It's kind of quickly left in the dust. Now it's kind of a cult classic, but I think in the moment it was really left in the dust. And she returns in 2009 with a Max Martin and Dr. Luke produced <laughs> song that is 100% the progeny of Since You've Been Gone called My Life Would Suck Without You. This is the lead single from what will become her fourth album, 2009's All I Ever Wanted. The fact that I love this song notwithstanding, how do you process the fact that she went from such a defiant stance and then sort of folded back into the plan? Well, I sort of feel like because she went with that defiant album and the returns were not what Breakaway was and you still have this label deal, the album felt like a requirement once again and to a certain degree. I remember writing my review of it in college and finding it almost like so cruel that she's sort of glossy, candy-coated, pop almost to like a satire degree on this cover, and the title is called All I Ever Wanted. Feels like such right. a cruel Clive Davis. Oh yeah, I like, never thought about that. Knife in the back, because that's what it gives me. And I feel like she's went out on my December, got what she wanted, and then still had this record deal and was like okay, fine, fuck it. I have to make some concessions because I am not pulling the numbers I once did. Yeah, I think I kind of feel like if we were talking about a sort of shifting power balance where in the production of My December, she held all the cards. Yes. It was like she kind of didn't hold them anymore at this point. And so My Life Would Suck Without You, produced by Max and Luke, and contains a secret Kelly Clarkson co-write credit oh. that she refused to have credited on the song That's because right. she refused to have her name next to Dr. Luke's. <laughs> is let's just say it, a fucking banger and a half. Incredible. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it. The narrative around it sucks. She didn't want to make it. <laughs> yep. She had one request from Clive Davis, which I think this is a reasonable request. It seems like she was in a reasonable place. I read that she said, to Clive, I understand that I can't make another My December. My one request to you is please don't make me work with Dr. Luke again. And he was like, sorry, babe. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like, so and gross. made her record this song. Yeah. It's, but it's so, so It's gross. so good, Brad. I mean, let's, can we I, be honest? The song is good. Yeah, it is it is good. I, I will say that I've always hated the title. I hate the line suck. It makes it corny to you. me. Immediately corny. I understand. But she sells it so well. Like all oh, great Kelly Clarkson songs. 
just her delivery and the gusto like can get past a lot of bullshit I feel like for me personally for sure and it has an undeniably anthemic chorus that is another fist pump scream shout along mm-hmm. sort of vibe it's since yep. you've been gone part two more glossy more 2090 it's definitely yeah, undeniably electro pop sheen feel that rock. wave of Gaga honestly like I don't think it sounds like Lady mm-hmm. Gaga but all of a sudden no. we had synth pop coming in and it's like okay we got to keep up with these girls now because things were changing and I think speaking of that new wave there's a number of songs on this record that are written by one Miss Catherine Hudson Katy Perry mm. including one of my favorite songs on this record I Do Not Look Up <laughs> the second single <laughs> really like this album I have to say I even might prefer it slightly to Breakaway which I know might be like a huge thing to say hugely I actually feel like we get a little bit of a cut the difference yes there's big glossy songs there's My Life Would Suck Without You there's a series of Ryan Tedder songs that I really cannot deal with I <laughs> Ryan Tedder is somebody that I don't personally enjoy very much and neither does she yeah neither does she <laughs> what Brad is referencing here is the fact that the third single from this record is called Already Gone produced and written by Ryan Tedder it was written prior to Beyonce's song Halo it sounds very much like Halo but it came out after Halo and Kelly just discovered in retrospect that Ryan made the song sound very similar and was once again, as in Kelly Clarkson tradition, very vocal about the fact that she felt duped by Ryan Tedder and that it wasn't the producer who was going to get blamed for this copycat thing, that it was going to be a press story about Kelly Clarkson copying Beyonce when in fact, Already Gone was written before Halo came out. Do not care for that song, do not care for Halo, do not care for the majority of Ryan Tedder songs. But (laughs) this album contains my favorite Kelly Clarkson non-single, Don't Let Me Stop You. I'm so glad you said that. That is genuinely one of my favorites as well. Oh my God. What a song. The chorus, the way that she goes off, she's so mad. I love Don't Let Me Stop You. That song is the platonic ideal of a Kelly Clarkson song. She's fucking pissed. You get the raw My December like uh, energy, but you also get the shimmering, incredible pop hook. What a song. You can't beat it. This album is one of my favorites because of that song alone. Like, I just love that The nice knowing you, but there's the door. Like that, the way that she delivers it. Nice knowing you quintessential Kelly. A superlative Kelly Clarkson song. I overall think this is a pretty solid Kelly Clarkson album. It is. I think if we're going to talk about narrative My December, I think it's stunted by the narrative of the behind the scenes as well, because you've got her very vocally unwilling to work with the very people that she's working with, at least two of them in this case, Luke and Tedder. The two biggest singles producers on Mm -hmm. this album. It's such an interesting Mm -hmm. contrast. And then of course you have Clive Davis looming over the whole project. And so it is sort of enshrouded in this like icky feeling of like, wow, all of these bad players, all the people she didn't want to work with are back with her. But undeniably, the music is solid. 
Yeah, I really like what you're saying here because it kind of makes you wonder if at a certain point she was like, now we're on the third album in a row in Kelly's discography that is like on some level pivoting around this narrative conflict with her and the powers that be. And you got to wonder if at a certain point she was like, is this what I want? (laughs) Is this what I want my legacy, my discography to be? You know, Uh because it sort of blows on one level as a fan to have to think back on a breakaway and be like, yeah, this is my favorite album and the artist that made it has so vocally despises so much about it. You know, mm-hmm. on the one level, it's nice to have that honesty, but on the other level, there's a certain part of you that, at least in me, impulsively, that's like, stop ruining all of the music that I like. I love uh-huh. you and I yes. want to just like this music. Yeah, it's conflict, conflict, conflict for three albums deep, pretty much, if not four. But this album does go some ways in restoring Kelly's pop career. My Life With yes. Without You is a number one smash. Already Gone is a sizable hit. This album isn't big on the level of a breakaway, but I think it gets her back into the radio conversation, back onto the charts, etc. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about Stronger and Piece by Piece in One World. So Kelly coming off the sort of comeback success of All I Ever Wanted, releases two albums in the beginning of the 2010s. Mm -hmm. One is 2010's Stronger. The other is 2013's Piece by Piece. Stronger is one of my least favorite Kelly Clarkson albums. I feel like it's a little bit of a flat, almost like dance poppy album produced by Greg Kirsten. Oh yeah, I have to disagree. Okay, I mean, I don't know. I just really feel like it's a little bit missing, like the edge of some of her oh, other no, work. Oh no, yeah, we're, we're staunchly opposed in this one. Okay, okay, I, okay. For me, the low point of her career is objectively piece by piece, except for the title track. Yeah, I mean, I don't love piece by piece either. Yeah. She has some real killers on this album. When we talk about one of her best known songs, like What Doesn't Kill You Stronger, is up there with Since You've Been Gone. What doesn't kill you makes you Okay, but like, it's a little bit of like a facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile of a Kelly Clarkson empowerment anthem and a facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile of the general wave of empowerment anthems of this era, like Born This Way and Firework and We Are Who We Are. Like, it's a little bit like in that mold in a way that doesn't feel like singular to Kelly in the way that some of her pop rock anthems of the earlier times did. To me, to me. I don't know. I don't know. I guess I hear what you're saying, but I still feel like it's taken so seriously as one of her hits. No, I mean, it's definitely one of her best hits. I'm just saying that I don't know if it's like quite on the same level or it's a little bit of an airsats version of songs she has made before in the past that are better to me personally. Fair. What do you make of the fact that with albums like Stronger and Piece by Piece, she did sort of slide into making commercially viable music. She never really went back to making iconoclastic albums in the vein of My December again. What do you think was the impulse behind that? Like, what shifted there between Kelly, within Kelly, between Kelly and Clive, in Kelly's goals for herself that just sort of had her fall into this thing with these albums in the 2010s where she just made basically down-the-middle Kelly Clarkson albums of varying stripes and shades? 
I just kind of feel like there was a mutual exhaustion or understanding of each other at the point where she was like, I know you need to make money, but you know what I like to write. And I think at a certain point of butting heads, the parties involved did sort of gel and say, okay, let's find the happy medium in the best, least dramatic way to date of her career, where there was no pushback that we heard about. And everyone just kind of said, we know what a Kelly Clarkson album sounds like, we'll give you the pop edge, but you'll be able to write. And I do think they came to a compromise on this album more so than ever. Right. Okay. So they have reached this detente where I guess they're both in the same space in terms of their goals with the commercial product that is Kelly Clarkson at this point and the artistic product. Like Kelly is able to be a writer and generate her own material, but she's also comfortable working with established producers and songwriters to produce essentially radio fodder music that still has Kelly's authenticity in it. So Stronger is another successful album. There is... The top 10 lead single, Mr. Know-It-All, and of course, Stronger, What Doesn't Kill You, which we just talked about, which is a number one smash, one of her biggest singles ever. In 2015, she releases her next album, which is called Piece by Piece, which is sort of an 80s nodding record that comes after a huge wave of 80s nodding pop records like 1989 and Emotion. You said that this is by far your least favorite Kelly Clarkson album, so talk to me very briefly about why that is and what's going on on 2015's Piece by Piece. Piece by Piece for me, she was very vocal about the fact that she was pregnant, throwing up every day, that she was uncomfortable physically. And I really do think that she had to turn in an album. It was her final album under RCA. I think she completely said, just give me whatever shit you have. And it showed completely she was uncomfortable. I don't think this is a creative peak by any means. Heartbeat Song is my least favorite Kelly Clarkson song of all time. hate hate heartbeat song and the fact that it was the lead single is just unforgivable but i will say that we can never take away the fact that piece by piece is like extremely important to the kelly carson narrative and unfortunately it now has even more meaning it was supposed to wrap up because of you it was supposed to say my father abandoned us you didn't piece by piece i restored my faith that a man could be good and unfortunately it now has a bittersweet edge to it, a tone to it. Right, because her husband that the song was about ended up cheating on her, stealing money from her. And so... It's so rough now to listen to that song because she talks about Brandon in the song is like, now I know what I was missing. And so it's unfortunate. And But also her performances of it were beautiful. Right. There's a very famous one from American Idol, I think, yeah, where she like breaks down in tears and it was so beautiful. It really was. And like just her crying, singing it because you can feel how much she relates to the lyrics. He'll never walk away. He'll never walk away. He'll never break her
and I don't want to take away from the album saying she had no creative input. Of course, like she co-wrote like a lot of these songs as well. But I do feel like it's my least favorite Kelly album, and it's just not something I return to because it feels like the final album in a record deal. So piece by piece, the song off of the power of that very emotional American Idol performance goes top 10. Kelly releases her latest album in 2017, which is called Meaning of Life, kind of a return to the R&B soul vibes of her earliest work. And of course, Kelly's had a giant reinvention in recent years following her kind of epic divorce from this husband that we were hinting at earlier. She's kind of been reborn as America's newest successful talk show host. She has this extremely successful daytime talk show where her very authentic positive vibes personality that we had at the beginning of her career has been put to work in this new format and of course we're gonna have to talk about Kelly Oki where she sings on the show every single day a cover of a different pop song that basically she makes better every single time she does it so why do you think Kelly has been so successful in this new wave of her career as America's sweetheart talk show host. Well, it's exactly what we talked about during American Idol. It's the charm and the down-to-earthness that Kelly has that can't really be faked at all. She became such a foil, a contrast to Ellen and her sort of robotic, cold, <laughs> mean spirit. Okay. <laughs> um, she rightfully surpassed Ellen just because of her very authentic charms and the show when i remember when it did come out and i watched it it's pleasant because it's like a good blend of celebrity that she always wants to be your friend and she always wants to find a cool relatable thing that they can talk about that feels super gen i mean the moments that she had with sandra bullock how fun was that that like, that was so good um your kids have a talent for singing they love singing my daughter does okay she has some pipes that's exciting it's, really, it's so you know they say it skips a gym my parents were opera i was gonna singers. say your parents were i singers. cannot sing at all my parents were singer both dead um it's okay but they were I'm singers okay though okay but yeah. that's cool wait you don't sing <laughs> that they're dead or no that, that they're singers that's so sad that they're dead <laughs> i'm sweating and then of course to top it all off you have this holy opening which is kelly oki which was in retrospect just such a brilliant return a callback to why we know her she's still doing this she'll still sing any song in the american songbook and it's such a clever way of going viral every fucking day on gay twitter and yeah, beyond and, yeah and it only really works because she actually does every single song almost better than the original version because that's kelly's gift she's the most versatile singer or pop singer we have working today and she can really embody so many different styles and she gets to show that off now every single day on the show The Kelly Ogi thing is such a wonderful daily full circle reminder of why we fell in love with this woman in the first place on American Idol, basically taking ownership over all these different songs and just smashing them out of the park. So she hasn't released a record since 2017. She's got this big hit talk show. Kelly Ogi has become this huge deal to the point where they've actually started to release these songs as like actual albums, EPs, etc. It's like a fucking phenomenon. She's gone through this incredibly ugly divorce behind the scenes that I don't want to get into the details of, but essentially, like, she has to pay this insane amount of money in alimony to this guy, and he just sounds like a total fucking schmuck. 
We know that Kelly's best work has often come in the context of breakups, etc. What do you think is coming next for Kelly Clarkson in her musical pop star journey? In my opinion, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that her greatest work may lie ahead. I don't think it's impossible because I think she's been sitting on something for eight, nine, six years or so. She's had time to whittle this project down to a very specific sound and point of view about the situation. And from how she sounds on Kellyoki, she could be vocally and lyrically at her height right now. And let's be honest, Kelly Clarkson scorned makes fucking anthems, Brad. Absolutely. And <laughs> <laughs> we, as much as I would never wish it on no, her. No, 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 no. We don't wish for her I, to suffer. I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. I'm excited too. I really feel like maybe we could get an amazing comeback album out of this situation. Not that I yeah. want her to suffer to have yes, good art. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the pop pantheon. Where, Brad Stern, do you see our girl Kelly fitting into the pop pantheon? I would probably stick her in the superstars of your tier. Mm-hmm where she had a specific moment and it's carried on as a legendary successful legend now but you're not going to see her on the charts like right now in a conventional sense yeah i completely concur this is exactly where i would put her too just to run down it really quickly one to three albums or eras over at least half a decade that spawned numerous hit singles she definitely Mm -hmm. has that if not more Five to ten genuine smash hits. I'd say that makes sense. I'd say Kelly's got... You're talking about genuine smash hits. I'd say she's got a good ten. Eight? Yeah. Ten? Definitely. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least one album that had a major impact with many hit songs. Mm-hmm. Breakaway, obviously. Defined or helped define a very specific moment. Absolutely. I think Kelly Clarkson is a definitive artist mm-hmm. of her generation. Mm-hmm. Still very well known and meaningful to anyone who was from prime age when she was having her moment. Absolutely. I think Kelly Clarkson's legend endures with people our yes. age. Like if you grew up during the Since You've Been Gone era, you fucking love Kelly yep. Clarkson. Beefy arsenal of hits they can sell Toron. I think that's been proven. Even though she's past her commercial peak probably. Continues to make critically regarded work i think so i mean meaning of life got good reviews whatever that's a, like a, i think she's i think kelly clarkson is generally beloved and i would also say that her albums were not so critically regarded and they increasingly are like i feel like she got a lot of that yeah. like shitty rolling stone two out of five kind of vibe at the beginning and now it's like yeah the pre-pop right 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 yeah. and now there's revisionist history about it yeah i would potentially argue that since you've been gone like invented poptimism but Ooh. <laughs> like since you've been gone is the song that people were like this is a cool <laughs> pop song that deserves to be written about no, right. critically yeah. and like yeah 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 Yep. Right? Yep. If they released an album today, it'd be something most pop fans would be interested in. I think so. Like, if you're engaged in pop music, you're probably going to be, like, interested in hearing a new Kelly Clarkson. We already know she has... She had a Vegas residency, She was about to. It was 2020. So we are waiting to hear if that's still going to (laughs) happen. We know she could. We know she could, could. yeah. Anyway... She hits all these criteria. I can't disagree. I think this is exactly yes. where she belongs. Yeah, as well. absolutely. So, my last question to you before we go out is what is an underrated Kelly song? Maybe something we haven't touched on yet that we could go out on here. There is a song from All I Ever Wanted, actually, that really went under the radar the day we fell apart. It is a perfect mm-hmm. pop song, and I feel like nobody heard it. It wasn't on the standard album. And I would also like to shout out she had a period, my December, into All I Ever Wanted, where she 
had some demos yeah. leak and I have very wonderful memories wandering around Boston listening to them in college and she had a song called Close Your Eyes and that is really the one I want to leave off on. It is a beautiful song. It never saw light of day properly, but she was really mm-hmm. onto something here with this track. Okay, so let's go out and close your eyes. Brad Stern, thank you so much for being on the Thank podcast. you for having me. It was really a pleasure and I'm so happy I could sing the praises of legendary Gomez. Gomez-merizing, that's another legend. (laughs) Legendary Clarkson. She is truly one of our faves. I'm so happy that she that deserves. She, yes, she, she, she deserves, deserves many hours of uh, critical <laughs> acclaim. <laughs> and we did deliver. We sure, all sure did. If you break, I'll break too. When you're lonely, I hold on to you. I see you close now, but I won't give up now. I'm gonna fight for you tonight. Close your eyes. All right, so there it is, folks. Pop Pantheon Kelly Clarkson, a tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say the heartiest thank you to the wonderful Bradley Stern for being such a wonderful guest. Thank you once again to everyone who came out to Gorgeous Gorgeous. Please go rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. Follow me at DJ L O U I E X I V. Hop in the Discord. Let me know what you think about Kelly Clarkson, about American Idol, about my December. Let's get into a talk about it all. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes and in my bios on social media. And until we meet again, my friends, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. I'll break, I'll break too.